Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Last time, I shared a quick update on a passion project of mine, an online course on public speaking that will not only help you overcome your fear, but help you shine. The course has been recorded and is in post-production. I wanted to share with you the name of the course, which is the Easy Peasy Public Speaking Makeover Series. Six episodes, 10 minutes each, one hour to change your fortunes in this challenging arena. Thanks for listening. And I'll share more as we get closer to launch. Here with us today is author and columnist Justin Barizo, who writes weekly on the topic of emotional intelligence. Over a million people a month read his Inc.com column, and his work has been featured by Time, NBC, and Forbes. His new book, EQ Applied, has quickly become one of the best-selling books on emotional intelligence. We speak to Justin from his home office in Germany. Welcome, Justin, to the White Works podcast, and thank you for being here. Hey, thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. So I've really enjoyed reading your articles on Inc. and LinkedIn, especially how you tie the abstract concepts in emotional intelligence to real-world situations. How did you get started writing about EQ? Good question. So um, I'll, I'll make a, a long story short. I came to Germany about seven years ago. Um, when my wife uh, and I, or when she got pregnant with our first child, Great. so we came back here to be uh, closer to her family. She's from here and um, just kind of went through a, a little period of not knowing exactly what I was going to do. I took a, about a year off to get to know the language and was just kind of reassessing things and started off consulting with uh, German companies. And my, I, my focus at the time was um, in their English communications, helping shape their English communications, because Germans actually speak uh, a, a real high level of English generally. But there are always these miscues, you know, because the Germans, um, generally speaking, are more direct uh, than Americans and British. And so there are always, always these miscues. So we'd work on that. And then we'd get into the, the emotional aspects too. You know, what's the emotional underpinnings of an email or, you know, having these international meetings and that kind of thing. And I found myself more and more focusing on that and also writing about it, I landed a column um, with uh, Inc. Magazine, their digital version. Uh, and that's, it was just through, uh, I connected with Jeff Hayden, who's a really popular, he's one of the most popular columnists uh, on Inc. And just a, a great guy. I didn't know him at all. I reached out to him through LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we made a connection. And after I had asked him to look at some of my work, and I eventually just straight up asked him, hey, what do you think of the chances of, uh, of me writing for Inc.? You know? <laughs> that was after months, okay? Let's, let's fast forward right, there. Right, that was right. months of relationship building. And I really had no uh, no goal of doing that, you know? Right, right. I, no agenda, so, just kind of get Yeah, it. yeah, seriously. I mean, I, I was just, he, I, I kind of, his writing really resonated with me yeah. um, because we had kind of come from a similar background. I had worked in a, a book publishing plant for years um, and, and uh, you know, heading up a small team there. And he had done that too. So, we, you know, his, his writing, and his writing is, is excellent. It's just very down to earth, real practical, which is, I found, you know, resonated with me. So that's how it all began. And then um, more and more, I would write about uh, 
that for my column. You know, my column's called Best Practice, but I would write about, um, you know, that's what I knew. That's what I had developed real experience with is just managing people and, and learning how to deal with, with those emotions, both internally our emotions and also the emotions of others. And, and that's how it all really got started. Wow. What I love about your story is you didn't just spring forth out of some PhD psychology, social <laughs> Definitely not. program, you know, it was very kind of organic. It wasn't planned, but you, you've kind of followed the course of, of what life gave you and your passions. And it, and it ended up in this, you know, what I imagine is a, is a very fulfilling spot you're in now. And I think that's very like encouraging to people who think like, Oh, I need to go back to school or I need this or that. Otherwise I can never get there. It's, it's not always, that's not the path for everyone. Definitely. And, and to be honest with you, I think it's, the main reason that I've reached any level of success on this topic, because you have these people that are coming from those backgrounds and they're the ones writing about it. Right. And I love, I love, you know, Goldman's work. Um, I love Bradbury's work and um, you know, I could just go on and on um, Susan, David, all these authors that I had read, but I felt like there was something missing in the literature, which was, well, you know, how do you apply this to the real world? And what are the experiences, you know, that, that I can share with my own personal journey of learning emotional intelligence? And I felt that was missing, you know, there in that space. And I think that's, like you said, encouraging other people. That's the advantage that we all have. No one has our individual experiences. No one can, can describe what, what we've been through, what we've learned. And um, that really resonates with people. And going back to Jeff, that's what, you know, that's what drew me to him. And hopefully that's what draws a lot of people to my writing is they see themselves in, in the way we tell those stories and the way we apply it to real life, everyday situations. But yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that worked out to be a, a big advantage for me. So I hope you don't mind. I, I plan on following your example and subscribing to more of this abundance model, right? Like not a scarcity model, right? Not, not like, oh, everyone's already done it. There's only room for enough people. No, you were like, you know what? There's a lot of great stuff but there's still more to do. There's, there's more room for quality and for, to fill needs of people. And I just think that's, that's very inspirational to have that kind of abundance mindset and, and not a scarcity mindset. Yeah, definitely. And just, and just focusing, what you just said right now, focusing on quality, because the more and more that are out there, you see that the, the less you see the very high quality stuff. So when you're really focusing on, again, being authentic, so it's all about you because your, your experiences are individual. But when you can really tell your personal story in a good way, not many people can do that. So it will resonate with, with many. Great. So that's a great segue to our next question. Tell us what you do, but explain it as if you were talking to a five-year-old. Okay. I try to distill... Uh, emotional intelligence definition into very, very simple terms, okay. um, which is to make your emotions work for you instead of against you. So um, I have a seven-year-old at home. <laughs> and uh, what, I, what I teach him is, how can, you, how can you deal with your feelings, Jonah? How can you deal with your feelings in a positive way, in a way that helps you? Ah, I think that's brilliant. How you deal, you teach people to better deal with their feelings, right? Exactly. Yeah. And the so, feelings of others. Absolutely. So I'm so happy you're here. And let me tell you why. While I'm a huge believer in emotional intelligence and its importance, I fail at it on a regular basis. So like the many times my wife will turn to me and ask, you know, what's stressing you out? Or why are you so upset? And, and I honestly think to myself, 
why would you say that? I'm not stressed or upset. <laughs> but clearly, she, we all been there. <laughs> yeah, she she knows, and I just think it's really common for people. It's it's not unusual for us to not really see ourselves clearly in the moment and our emotions. And in addition, you know, to to echo your point, to not really see others' emotions and what they're going through clearly. And I'm really excited to explore this with you. What changes have you seen in yourself or others who begin to practice more emotional intelligence? Okay, so I'll I'll start with myself. Um, I think um, it just helps you or, or it's helped me to identify those weaknesses. I mean, so, so often we just don't realize, you talked about it a minute ago w- with your experience with your wife and, and I kind of chimed in there that we've all been there. We've all done that. Even, you know, you can show me an emotional intelligence expert and I'll show you somebody that's lost their temper many times. <laughs> you know, I, I like to call myself a student of emotional intelligence instead of an expert because there's no lifetime certification for this stuff. Um, it's something that you constantly have to work on. And so for myself, um, what I've noticed is I've, no, I've learned to identify my weaknesses. For example, one of the things that, that I write about in, in my new book, so EQ Applied, I, I kind of knew that I was a bad multitasker, <laughs> but I didn't know how bad it, I'm, I am the worst multitasker in the world, okay? And <laughs> I identified this one day because I was in a park with my kids and um, I'm trying to, I get pinged, you know, work email and I'm like, okay, let me answer this real quick. And I'm supposed to be watching them, but now I'm trying to watch them and, and answer this email at the same time. What happens? Next thing you know, I get frustrated and I'm yelling at my kids and they're in tears and I'm like, ah, oh, what have I done, you know? And then I'm like, okay, I'm never going to do that again. And then three days later or a week later, the whole episode repeats itself, right? And so I had to learn to stop and reflect and say, why do I keep doing this over and over again? Why do I keep responding in the same way? And in that situation, basically, it came down to multitasking. The fact wasn't that, you know, I have bad kids. The fact wasn't that, that I normally easily get frustrated. The fact is when I'm trying to do two things at one time, then I easily get frustrated. And so identifying weaknesses like that, identifying how um, you react emotionally in certain situations, what your triggers are, that kind of thing, can help you over time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not that you identify that and then the next day uh, everything's hunky-dory, but it helps you over time to develop qualities like patience and to identify your triggers so to have kind of a go-to routine to know what to do. And to go back to that example with my kids, I learned, hey, stop trying to multitask. If I'm with my kids, then stop answering the work emails. Wait until that work email can wait half an hour, can wait an hour or whatever it takes. And if I do, in those exceptions that I really have to address something, then, you know, I find my wife, hey, can you watch the kids for 10 minutes? I just really have to take care of this or, you know, do whatever you have to do. But yeah, basically that's what it comes down to is identifying those weaknesses and triggers and then working on them and it, and it helps you it helps your relationships help my relationship with my kids help my relationship with my wife and again it's not perfect you still there's still times when you make mistakes and and you're still identifying those scenarios and those weaknesses but it's definitely an improvement it's definitely better well what really resonates with me about what you're saying is you identify the thing but there's more to that, right? It's, it's like the identification is just the beginning. And, and I'm a big believer in developing systems and habits 
to put you in the best position possible to succeed. So like for your example, I'm sure what you do now is like you just described, you don't put yourself in a situation where you're multitasking kids and work unless it's an absolute necessity. And, and therefore you kind of create a condition for you to be more successful. Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree with that, that approach. All right. Well, let's take a look at our first clip. It would have been so normal for this speaker to respond defensively or even aggressively to this question from the audience. But this response was so much more effective. Mr. Jobs, you're a bright and influential man. Here it comes. It's sad and clear that on several counts you've discussed, you don't know what you're talking about. I would like, for example, for you to express in clear terms how, say, Java, in any of its incarnations, addresses the ideas embodied in OpenDoc. And when you're finished with that, perhaps you could tell us what you personally have been doing for the last seven years. Uh, you know, you can please some of the people some of the time. But one of the hardest things when you're trying to affect change is that people like this gentleman are right in some areas. I'm sure that there are some things OpenDoc does, probably even more that I'm not familiar with, that nothing else out there does. And I'm sure that you can make some demos, maybe a small commercial app that demonstrates those things. The hardest thing is, what, how does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision that's going to allow you to sell um, $8 billion, $10 billion of product a year? And one of the things I've always found is that you've got to start with the customer experience and work backwards to the technology. You can't start with the technology and try to figure out where you're going to try to sell it. And I've made this mistake probably more than anybody else in this room. And I've got the scar tissue to prove it. And I know that it's the case. And as we have tried to come up with a strategy and a vision for Apple, um, it started with what incredible benefits can we give to the customer? Where can we take the customer? Not, not starting with, let's sit down with the engineers and, and figure out what awesome technology we have and then how are we going to market that. Um, and I think that's the right path to take. What can we learn here, Justin? <laughs> so uh, Steve Jobs, I think, is a, is a really interesting case study in emotional intelligence, for better and for worse, you sure. know, just from, from what we know him uh, about him through the years. And um, Walter Isaacson, of course, wrote a, a great biography. But this is here just a couple of minutes of watching this guy in action. And I think it's a very positive example of how he used a tool of emotional intelligence that I like to call the pause 
The pause, okay. The pause. And the pause is very simple. It just means uh, stopping or pausing before you say or do anything to, to kind of gather your thoughts and get your emotions under control. Now, I try to put myself in that scenario and I'll ask listeners to do the same. If someone in front of a lot of people accuses you, I think that the, the questioner said, you don't know what you're talking about. Wow, that's a gauntlet <laughs> thrown down right there. <laughs> yeah. And like, how would you respond to that? How would I respond to that? And the, the normal reaction, I'd say for most of us, would be to jump into a defense or yeah. to attack back. Yep. Or, you know, there's a, a few different ways it could go. But few of us would do what Steve Jobs did in that moment, which is pause. But that's really the best thing to do in that scenario, because it gives you a chance to gather your thoughts, gather your emotions. Now, you know, he said, the, the questioner said, you don't know what you're talking about. That seems to be a, a pretty uh, frontal attack. But then he also said towards the end of the question, I'd also like to know what you personally have been doing for the last seven years. And that could be interpreted different ways, right? That could also be an attack, but it could also be, you know, it could be a genuine question. Of course, following what it did, most people would view it as an attack, but Jobs didn't take it that way. At least he didn't respond it that way. So he took that, and, and I, I've, I counted this originally, I think it's about 20 seconds in between the, the original end of the question and his real answer. Yeah. Um, and that's a long time. <laughs> I mean, to be in front of an audience not saying anything that they're expecting you to keep the show going, you know what I mean? So he takes those, those seconds and he gets everything under control and he delivers a very calm, collected response. He agrees with his uh, accuser. He says, persons like this gentleman are right. In some ways, he goes on to explain that. He brings everything. He actually turns the narrative of the question back to under his control. He starts talking about the big picture and the larger vision, which if you watch or have listened to Steve Jobs over the years, that's something he's talked about a lot. So he found a way to get things back to his core message. And then after that pause, you also notice that he keeps his pacing. You know, he doesn't try to rush and answer. He takes his time to answer. And over the course of the next few minutes, he actually turns the crowd to where the, he gets applause at the end. He praises his team. He makes himself vulnerable. He, he recognizes mistakes that he's made, but he finishes in a very strong, motivating way. Um, and that you can, you can, I'd argue, you can only do that if you get your emotions under control. And one of the best ways to do that is to pause. So I think that that clip is a great example of teaching the pause when someone says something or does something and you're tempted to just respond. You know, there are times when an immediate emotional response is warranted. Okay. You don't want to stand by and watch someone bully someone else or, right. you know, but in most cases, the best way is to get yourself under control so that you can give a controlled response. And that's what you're going to, that's when, what's going to lead to less regrets later. Well, I love how um, the terminology used, you know, the pause, because when we were just watching it together now, I definitely did notice how it was a very, not a slow response, but it was a very kind of controlled, like he was taking the time he needed. You can, you can sense that. And you can imagine the crowd is like, you know, waiting to see what happens, but he's not going to yeah. be rushed. You know, he's, he's going to figure out what he's going to say. And, and the other thing that I was, you know, that you made me think about when you were talking about all the different things that he did, like agreeing, 
was he was only able to turn the ship or get the crowd on his side because he kind of agreed with the gentleman, because he kind of took the perspective and worked his way back to where he was. If he had just disregarded what the guy said and said, no, this is what really is important, he probably would have come off as kind of arrogant and people wouldn't have felt on his side, even if they agreed with him. Exactly. And that's, that's another quality of, of emotional intelligence that, um, you know, we talk about a lot is empathy. A lot of people preach empathy. They want to be known as empathetic, but we often fail to show empathy in the situations that we most need to a situation like this, because again, our immediate response might be to fight back, but the best way to respond in this case was to say, all right, let me look at things from this guy's perspective because many in the audience also have his perspective. And that could be shown because they kind of, many in the audience kind of supported him. They clapped (laughs) along with the questioner, right? So, so, but Jobs takes that 15, 20 seconds, say, okay, what is this guy really saying? How can I agree with him and and see things from his perspective? And that's something so needed today because you have all this political discourse where people are just like, you know, lots of vitriol between people or racism, sexism. We have all these major problems, but when you just attack people back, you just drive this wedge further and further between you, you know, where you can never make any type of progress. But when you can acknowledge the other person, when you can try to see things from their perspective, then that's the key to, you know, starting to, to have any type of persuasion or influence. Absolutely. I think a lot of us can see our own relationships in this next super clip. I thought you'd be back by 11. I said I'd be back later. I assumed you'd be back later. If you came back at all, you'd be back later. Well, I'm back. Okay. Is this rubble? It was just a little workout. Just stay loose. You know how I feel about that, Bob. Darn you, we can't blow cover again. The building was coming down anyway. What? You knocked down a building? It was on fire, structurally unsound. It was coming down anyway. Tell me you haven't been listening to the police scanner again. Look, I performed a public service. You act like that's a bad thing. It is a bad thing, Bob. Uprooting our family again so you can relive the glory days is a very bad thing. Reliving the glory days is better than acting like they didn't happen. Yes, they happened. But this, our family, is what's happening now, Bob. And you are missing this. I can't believe you don't want to go to your own son's graduation. It's not a graduation. He is moving from the fourth grade to the fifth grade. It's a ceremony. It's psychotic. They keep creating new ways to celebrate mediocrity. But if someone is genuinely exceptional, this then This is they... not about you, Bob. This is about Dash. You want to do something for Dash? Then let him actually compete. Let him go out for sports. I will not be made the enemy here. You know why we can't do that. Because he'd be great! This is not about... You! All right, Dash. I know you're listening. Come on out. Bye. You too, young lady. Come on. Come on out. It's okay, kids. We're just having a discussion. Pretty loud discussion. Yeah, but that's okay. Because what's important is that Mommy and I are always a team. We're always united against uh, the forces of... uh, Pig-headedness? I was going to say evil or something. So what do we just witness, Justin? <laughs> well, you, 
Excuse me, you summed it up well. It's something almost every couple can see themselves in, right? A scene, because it's a pretty emotional conversation and relationships are all about emotion. And that's a good thing. Actually, I would argue that 90% of that conversation um, was a good thing because you need to talk about those differences of opinion and those strong emotional those strong feelings you have about situations that are affecting you and your partner and your family. Mm-hmm. So I actually look at most of that conversation is very good. The bad thing happens when those conversations stop because now, you know, people just don't care anymore. Um, partners, uh, uh, spouses are, are living together, but they just don't put forth the effort. They say, you know, it's not worth it. And then you're just gradually drifting apart until the, the marriage, the relationship, and it breaks up. So I, I think conversations like that are very good. They're very emotionally intelligent. Now, the, the one thing I looked at, you know, about the 130 mark, they start raising their voices. You know, we talked about the pause in the last clip. Now, here's another control that, that I write about. I call that the volume control. Okay. Oh. And my wife actually helped me to appreciate this, that, um, that <laughs> when you raise your voice, what's the natural response? It's for your partner to start raising their voice in return. And when we can just lower that volume and, and try to keep things calm, then usually the partner will, our partner will do the same thing. And so it's easier to have a calmer, uh, rational discussion. But like we said, those emotions are normal and, and you want them to come out, but you don't want it to turn into a, a shouting match because then, you know, nobody's listening to the other person. You're not accomplishing anything anymore. So once you start raising those voices, now in this clip, the kids came out and said that stopped them. So that was great. But if you notice that yourself, then it, then it might be time to say, hey, let's just take a pause and let's revisit this conversation at a later time because it's not going to do any good at that point to just keep talking about it. But I, I really love what the the dad said to the kids, which is that what's important is your mom and I are always a team. We're always united, you know, and she makes a little joke, uh, a little dig at him. (laughs) But you can tell, okay, this is all fictional. It's a a cartoon about superheroes, but there's, there's reality. There's authenticity in the scene that you can tell that they, they are a team, you know, that in this story, they have a close relationship and they are intent on staying together. And that's what makes that, that conversation very needed. And so what happens next, if you, if you, if the conversation ends, okay, now you have a chance to think about what did your partner say? Um, Reflect on, again, trying to have empathy. What's their point of view? What's their perspective? Not giving up on our own perspective because we have valid points too. But when we, when we start showing empathy and looking for the other person's perspective, the natural response is they'll do the same for us. When we keep focusing on our perspective, then, you know, they do the same thing. But if we can focus on their perspective, come back now to the, to the conversation later the next day or a couple days later. Think about, okay, when's a good place and time to have this conversation? Okay, honey, look, we got to talk about, you know, what we were talking about the other day. Um, I really appreciate that you shared this with me and I've given it a lot of thought and I can see why you feel this way because this and this and this. The natural response will now be for your spouse or your partner to come back and and start to try to see things from your perspective too. Two things. Uh, the first one is just a real quick one that uh, that I'm getting from what you're saying. The first is volume control. I'm totally stealing that from you. <laughs> I'm going to use that in conversations because I think that's brilliant. And kudos to your wife um, for helping with that because our wives should always get that credit. Definitely. Um, 
the second thing is I love what you were saying about empathy not being necessarily about winning or losing or giving up or saying that the other person's right. Because I feel like there's a fundamental misunderstanding where people are like, oh, if I'm empathetic and I'm always apologizing and the other person's always right. I mean, I mean, if you could explain a little bit more about how that's not really what you mean when we're talking about empathy and understanding the other person's perspective and how you still get your own perspective. You get to keep what you have, but also appreciate others. Oh, definitely. So in the course of writing the book, I had a chance to interview uh, Chris Voss, who is... Um, oh, love him. Hosta, yes. Never split the difference. Yeah. Exactly. FBI's former lead kidnap negotiator. Yes. Has has negotiated hundreds of um, high-level negotiations through the years. So he has this statement that I've totally stolen, uh, (laughs) which is empathy does not mean agreement. Yes. Empathy does not mean agreement. And that's so fundamental and so many people don't understand that. And I count myself in that in the past because I also felt that in the past. But, But empathy doesn't mean agreement means like, like Chris Voss, he had to negotiate with terrorists and kidnappers and people with all kinds of crazy agendas. And the key to him persuading and influencing them was being able to recognize where they're coming from, why they're doing what they're doing, um, what their perspective is. Of course, he doesn't agree with it. You know, these are hardened criminals, but he had to understand where they're coming from to make any progress with them. Now, our, our spouses, our wives, our colleagues, you know, all the above, most of them are not hardened criminals, right? But you can apply that principle. Empathy is not agreement. It's not about necessarily agreeing with them. It's about understanding them. Yeah, I think when you can sort of turn that corner and start to master that, it just opens up a world of possibilities in terms of how you can have more positive interactions with people and less volume control issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. Because it, it's, it's reciprocal. When you feel understood, your natural desire now is to try to understand the other person. When you feel helped, your natural desire is to try to help the other person. Yeah. Whenever anyone asks me for a recommendation on a, on a negotiation book, I immediately steer them to that because oh, yes. like, like your book, it's so practical and it's, it, it takes away a lot of the kind of uh, more esoteric mumbo jumbo and really kind of gets to the heart of, of what works. So I love it. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I love his book as well. So granted, this next character technically has no emotions, but I think we can still learn a lot from how he handles a difficult management situation. So you think this is their flight plan? Yes. If I am correct, the mercenary ship is headed toward these coordinates in the Hyrulent sector. Their maximum speed is warp 8.7. It would take them at least 14 hours to reach that position. We could be there in five. Make it so. Finally. Set a course for the Hyreland sector and engage at warp nine. Aye, sir. Lieutenant. May I see you in the ready room? Of course. Lieutenant, I am dissatisfied with your performance as first officer. May I ask in what way? You continually question my orders in front of the crew. I do not believe this is appropriate behavior. With all due respect, sir, I have always felt free to voice my opinions, even when they differ from those of Captain Picard or Commander Riker. That is true. 
But in those situations, you are acting as head of security, not as first officer. The primary role of the second-in-command is to carry out the decisions of the captain. In this case, me. But is it not my duty to offer you alternatives? Yes. But once I have made a decision, it is your job to carry it out, regardless of how you may personally feel. Any further objection should be given to me in private, not in front of the crew. I do not recall Commander Riker ever publicly showing irritation with his captain as you did a moment ago. No, sir. If you do not feel capable of carrying out this role, I will assign it to Commander LaForge and return you to tactical. I would not enter it into your record as a reprimand, simply as a transfer. I would prefer to remain at my current post. Then I expect you to conform to the guidelines I have laid out. Aye, sir. Dismissed. Mr. Worf, I am sorry if I have ended our friendship. Sir, it is I who has jeopardized our friendship, not you. If you will overlook this incident, I would like to continue to consider you my friend. I would like that as well. Thank you, sir. So let me just say, Justin, I, I dream, I, I fantasize about being that sort of boss who could handle a conversation like that or, and I've had great bosses, but to have like always like a boss who holds me accountable in that way, it was just, it was so amazing. So what did Data do here, Justin? Oh, I love this scene so much. So, so I looked at uh, three things that I wanted to point out when I was reviewing the scene. First thing is uh, Worf, right? His, his, the, the other officer, uh, he gives out this, oh, finally, very passive aggressive, right? <laughs> and we all have that. Maybe we've done that times, but we've all had that person that's done that to us. And we, we hate that passive aggressive response. And what, is, what does Data do? Well, he confronts it head on, but he does it privately right? So, so it's the best thing. You, you can't just let someone keep making passive aggressive comments because it's only going to build resentment between you and the other person. And if you notice that they're doing that, you have to confront that situation head on. But he does it behind closed doors, away from the crowd. He does it very calmly and rationally. You know, of course, he's an android, right? According to the, <laughs> to the, the script. So it's not always easy to do, but it is possible you know, again, to, to, it's not about taking emotion out. It's about finding that balance between emotion and rational thinking because we're emotional creatures. So we don't want to take uh, emotion completely out of the equation. We just want to find that balance. Um, but if you're going to address a situation like this, do it in a calm, rational way in private. So that's point one, right? And he did an excellent job of that. And then point two is actually what, what Data's point is, is look, Worf, you need to be able to disagree and commit. Now, I just came across this, uh, I guess it's management terminology. I just discovered this within the last couple of years or so because uh, Jeff Bezos used it in his letter to shareholders, but I guess it was popularized by um, an Intel and disagree and commit says, look, you can disagree. You can, you can offer, you know, why you think something is a horrible idea, but when when we finally make the decision, 
then you have to disagree and commit. You have to commit to that decision. So that's so useful at work. It's so useful at home. You know, I apply it also to me and my wife all the time because there are times when we decide we're going to go this one way and we decide, okay, uh, I'm going to let my, my wife uh, have her way on this one. But then I would find myself sometimes making these snide little comments. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'd, be like, we'd be like jeopardizing it when I could, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's not disagreeing and committing. And that's what, what Data's problem here was. Like, look, you can speak your mind, but when the decision is made, you got to disagree and commit. And so that's, that's point two. And that's something that we can all do, you know, because there are times when we have to go with a decision we may not totally agree with, but we've this, this is the decision. Let's go with it and let's support it. Um, and like I said, I can help you at work or at home um, in any team environment. And then the last uh, great emotional intelligence um, technique or tool here is that data apologizes. And, you know, he's, he's hardcore throughout this whole scene, right? He says it how it is. At the end, he's not apologizing for, for, for what he's saying. He's not walking back or watering down what he's saying. He says, look, I'm sorry if this uh, ends our friendship. And he's actually putting the ball back in in uh in Worf's court right but the the whole purpose of the you know i love this this quote and you'll see it on pinterest and you'll see it uh on different places that ap- apologizing doesn't mean saying that someone is right it means that you care about your relationship more than their ego oh, and it might be yeah. cheesy it might be cliche but it's so true right because sometimes when we apologize it's not about acknowledging who's right or wrong it's just about moving forward, you know, moving the relationship forward, moving the situation forward. And what happens, again, it's a fictional scene, but it's rooted in reality. What happens oftentimes when we apologize, when we throw something, uh, throw the ball back in the other person's court, they apologize back. That's exactly what happened in the scene. And you do, you move that situation forward, you move the, you see that, or, or you show that you want to still be on the same team, that you want to hold out an olive branch, uh, so to speak. And, uh, and yeah, so that was the third point, but I love that scene. So, uh, a theme, if I may, that I see running through, you know, each of your observations is kind of the role of our ego, right? So, you know, the passive aggressive, that's like an egotistical thing, right? It's like, you know, I know better, but, you know, but I'm not able to do it. Like, you know, I'm going to do it in a passive aggressive way because maybe they're an authority figure and I don't want to confront them directly to disagree and commit. It's the same thing. It's like, I have to do it because they're in charge, you know, whether it's your boss or your wife, you know, but, you know, (laughs) your ego wants to get in those little extra kind of things. And the same thing with apologizing, right? It's like, if you're sort of full of yourself, you don't ever want to apologize. They did the wrong thing. Why should I apologize? Instead of acknowledging that, hey, you know, what I'm saying may be kind of hard on this person. So I'm going to acknowledge the hardness of it as opposed to just pretending like they're a non-person because they upset me. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. And that's where we get back to that point about not taking emotions out, but Mm -hmm. balancing the emotions. You recognize that this has an effect uh, on the other other person. You recognize that feelings are involved, both your own and the other person's, and finding a way to work in harmony with those feelings instead of just taking them out of the equation or instead of throwing yourself completely in to those feelings, but rather, fi- or in contrast, finding the balance between the two. And that is a great segue to our next clip. There is just something so true and that resonates so truly. My rock 
rocket. Wait, Riley and I were still using that rocket. It, 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 it still has some song power left. Who is your friend who likes to play? No! No, 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 you can't take my rocket to the dock. Riley and I are going to the moon. Riley can't be done with me. Okay, we can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? I had a whole trip planned for us. <gasps> hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the tickle monster! I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone. Forever. Sadness. Don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all I had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! It sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. <laughs> I'm okay now. <laughs> Come on. The train station is this way. What do you see going on here, Justin? So one of the uh, all-time great movies about emotions, Inside Out. If uh, any listeners haven't seen it, it's animated, but it really, man, it, it caused me to reflect so much yeah. uh, on my own feelings and emotions. So a great thing about this scene is to realize or to recognize that sadness or whatever negative emotions that you're dealing with, frustration, what, what we might classify as negative is not necessarily a bad thing, okay? So when we're feeling sad, we need sometimes to embrace that emotion. If you feel like crying, you need to have a good cry and kind of um, confront those feelings instead of always trying to suppress them but accept that there's nothing wrong with feeling sad. It's not strange. It doesn't make you uh, flawed or, or broken or weak. It's just these are human emotions. We're human to feel that. And learning to deal with those feelings, learning to accept those feelings so that we can work our way through them is the key to um, figuring them out. And, and a lot of it also has to do with you know, negative emotions or what we, what we call negative emotions can be very useful because they can help us to identify uh, situations that we need to change, or they can help us to identify um, things that, that we need to do differently or that, that we need to distance ourselves from, or we might be distancing ourselves from someone, something that we need to get closer to. And so those negative emotions are very useful for that to help us uh, figure things out. But step one is just embracing them and working through them instead of trying to suppress them. What I love about what you're saying here, Justin, is if you cut out the negative emotions, it's like you're not being your whole self, right? It's like it's not that you let them control you or that they run away. You, you, you process them in a healthy way, which, which I think we saw with the help of, you know, the friend sadness. But if you just ignore them or pretend they don't exist, you're actually not your complete self. You're this sort of hollow, fake, happy shell 
of yourself, which I can't imagine leads to a very fulfilling kind of existence or, or really strong relationships with others. Yeah, exactly. And again, it all comes down to um, finding that balance. So of course, if you find that you're, you're sad for weeks or, or months or right. longer at a time, you know, at specific events, then there, there may be the need now to, to get help. It's not just about working your way through a situation because obviously then that situation or that those feelings aren't passing. So again, it's all about finding that balance. And sometimes we need help, um, professional help at times to, to find that balance. But that's what, what we're aiming for is, is having that balance. Brilliant. Let's take a look at some controversial refereeing at a recent U.S. Open and the reaction of the player involved. Just on the baseline, Carlos Ramos in the chair. If he gives me a thumbs up, he's telling me to come on. We don't have any code, and I know you don't know that, and I understand why you may have thought that was coaching, but I'm telling you it's not. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose. I'm just letting you know. It was a coaching violation. I guess it was a thumbs up, and Serena's setting him straight. That, that is not coaching. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose. Osaka, after breaking loves. back, begins this game up 15 love. Did not see that coming. And now Serena's confused by the score being called out. Justin, obviously a very emotionally charged situation. Your thoughts? Yeah, so 
definitely a very emotionally charged and a very complex situation. You know, a lot of people uh, looked at this and they saw maybe 15 to 20 seconds of what happened and, and they passed judgment, you know, on what they felt was right or wrong. But just to, to differentiate, there's two very different conversations here about what's right or wrong from a sportsman-like um, uh, perspective and what, what is emotionally intelligent and what's not. And here's where emotional intelligence also gets very complex because how we deal with our emotions and, and how we manage them and the emotions of others, it also has a lot to do with what, what is our end goal. And like we've seen in, in past clips and then especially in this one, are we allowing our emotions to, to get away from us? But it's, it's just so complex, it's hard to boil down. But one thing I just wanted to, for, for listeners that would go back and watch, if, if you watch the whole 15 minutes or so, of this clip, you'll actually see that 90% of the interaction between Serena and the umpire is very polite. It's very respectful. And it's actually, um, it's, it's very, uh, from an emotional intelligence standpoint, it's very emotionally intelligent, for example. And I'll just shout, I'll just, I wrote a whole article on this. So I've got some notes and I'll just, <laughs> Great. you know, send them here. People can always go back to it. It was, it was on my column for, for ink.com. And okay, at the 20, 28 second mark, uh, you see that Serena is, is pretty calm in her speaking with the, with the official, again at the 49 second mark. And he's very calm. He's very polite and respectful um, in speaking to her. They're just explaining their, each other's perspectives and positions back and forth. She says, look, I'm not cheating. I know why you could see that it was, or, or you could imagine that it was. He says, okay, yeah, I, I know that you're not a cheater, but you know, these are the rules very calm, very respectful, very, very great handling of the situation. Then at a minute 38, that's when Serena breaks her racket. It has nothing to do with the umpire. She, you know, she uh, is frustrated that she just lost a point to a very good opponent, you know, Osaka. Um, but then, you know, things start to go off the rails a little bit because that, that's also a code violation. So now you're, she didn't think that she deserved the first code violation. Now she's getting another one for breaking her racket. She's confused now at the 235 mark. She asked for an explanation. And then here's where, in my opinion, what occurs is what we would describe as an emotional hijack. An emotional hijack is when uh, you go off the deep end a little bit, where you just kind of lose control of your emotions. And, you know, she starts yelling at him. But you have to remember, there's a lot of context to this. Serena has had a lot of previous problems. Every time she comes to, to play at the U.S. Open in New York, she's had problems that, that others have identified. Uh, you know, third parties have said, well, this is, this is biased against her. This is unfair. So she's bringing all that in with her. She's bringing in now an accusation that she's cheating, which very few have, have accused her of that before. And now, you know, she's trying to process that. You add in there the fact that the crowd is behind her and kind of rooting her on that, yeah, you're right, Serena. And this also feeds into, you know, how far she takes this. So anyway, I don't, I don't want to really say what's right and wrong in this, in this point, only to say that for most of this, the umpire and Serena actually handled this in a very emotionally intelligent way. But then there's this point where there's kind of a snap. And oh, and then what happens, the, the umpire gives her a lot of line and he lets her over the next, the four minute mark, the, the, the five minute mark, 
she just can't let it go, right? And he tries yeah. to give her he tries to give her some leeway. And there's a, at one point where where she calls him a liar, and you could see the camera focuses on him, and you can see that he's trying to decide at this point whether he's going to uh, assess her a penalty, but he holds back. And I give him a lot of commendation at this point too. You know, I give them both commendation at many points. Um, but here, you know, he holds back and then she says something again. She makes another dig at the five minute mark and he can't let it go anymore. So then he gives her the penalty, you know. And, and so again, it's, it's a very complex situation. But if you watch it, you can put yourself in that situation and you can see, okay, how should, how can I, um, handle things in a very calm and respectful way, and that's what happens for most of the time. But you can also see how things can push you over the edge. Now, you know whether she hurt her cause or helped her cause in the end. It's difficult to say because she says in post-game interviews she's also fighting for the rights of women and this kind of thing. And this is this is arguable to say whether she helped or hurt her cause in the end. And that's what emotional emotional intelligence is about: is is your reaction going to help or hurt? you, right? So that's, I'll leave that open, you know, whether it really helped her or hurt her in the end. But it's, it's a great case study for reflecting, also putting ourselves in that situation and then comparing ourselves. Because often what happens is we don't recognize that we've experienced an emotional hijack or we've let our emotions get away from us until after it's happened. And what I think um, Serena probably did, um, you know, without knowing her personally, but I'm, I'm sure that she reflected on this afterwards and said, okay, how would I handle this situation if it happened again? And that's what we can really take away from this is we're all going to have moments like this at some point. You know, maybe we don't go off to the same degree, but we're going to have points where our emotions get away from us. What can we learn from it after the fact? And how can we be more intentional with how we react in the future? What I love about what you're saying about this, Justin, and something I'm learning from, you know, as you were sharing this is that you know, one, the term emotional hijack, which I think is, is, is just right on. And in relation to that, you know, you gave the example that most of the conversation, they were in control. And, and what I learned from, from this whole clip and what you've been sharing is the emotional intelligence or the ability to sort of be self-aware and to control yourself isn't like a one and done battle right? Like, like a moment comes and you're like, oh yeah, you know, I did it. But when you're in this whole situation, like you said, you know, you described it very well. It's a complex situation. It is like an ongoing thing and things can start to tip one way where you were fine, you were over here, but then a couple other things. And like, like in this example, it might not even be related to the other person, right? Like you lose a point. That's got nothing to do right. with the referee, right? And that's a great example. So it, it's not just like, hey, I was emotionally intelligent for one second. I'm good. It actually is something you have to continue to monitor and be aware of, especially when you're in sort of a, a very momentous kind of ongoing situation. Like I think it was the finals of the women's U S open, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's one thing I like, I like to say is there's no lifetime certification yes. for, for EQ. You know, you, you're gonna have, times um, that, that you or situations or circumstances where you take steps back. Uh, and that's, again, it's all part of the human experience. But there's two ways to handle that. You can either move forward without giving any type of reflection of that and definitely encounter similar circumstances in the future and react the same way. Or you can say, okay, what do I like about what, do I did, what I did? What do I not like about what I did? And how can I respond in a way that is in harmony with 
my real core principles and values because that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with responding emotionally to a situation, but do you respond emotionally in a way that you regret later? You want, right. you want to have as few of those regrets um, as possible. And when we're in a very emotional moment, it's easy to say and do things that we wish we hadn't when we, when we have time to think about it later. Yeah. So learn from your failures of emotional sort of reaction and improve. So the next time is better. Exactly. Well, Justin, it's been a real treat to talk to you and learn from you about EQ. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience about how they can learn more and how they can get in touch with you? Sure. So um, I have a website, EQ Applied. Uh, they're welcome to, to read articles there. Also, um, I write the weekly column for Inc.com. So Justin Bariso, uh, Inc.com. And that's all uh, free content if they're interested in following real life examples of uh, emotional intelligence on a, on a weekly basis. And then if you're looking uh, for a deeper dive, then uh, my new book is entitled EQ Applied, The Real World Guide to Emotional Intelligence. And um, listeners can find that on Amazon or anywhere that, uh, that books are sold. Thank you, Justin, for sharing your insights on why it works. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Joe. I've really enjoyed it. Like pen and paper, a great audiobook to go with this podcast is EQ Applied, the real-world guide to emotional intelligence by today's guest, Justin Barizo. It takes a personal and modern approach to teaching you how to make your emotions work for you instead of against you. To receive a free copy of EQ Applied or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audibletrial.com slash whyitworks. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash whyitworks for your free audiobook. To support our show, please leave a rating or comment or become a sponsor of Why It Works by going to www.patreon.com slash whyitworks. That's www.patreon.com slash whyitworks. Thank you. And remember, the enemy of learning is boring. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joquan Joe Coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.